Introducing the Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, Live the Big Stuff podcast with New York Times bestselling author, Christine Carlson. With 25 million copies in print, learn how the Don't Sweat wisdom can help you achieve greater mental health and better communicate with your family, friends, and coworkers from a beloved teacher. Rediscover your passion, joy, and self-compassion to awaken your most vibrant life. Listen in now for the Meditation and Mindfulness series featuring Christine's interviews with experts who will help you learn the best tips and advice to make meditation a routine and habit you can't live without. Hi, and welcome back to the Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, Live the Big Stuff podcast. This is Christine Carlson. Let's begin as we begin all our podcasts by doing our golden pause. So wherever you are, just sit comfortably. If you're seated on the floor, sit cross-legged. If you're seated in a chair, just uncross your legs for a moment. and Just sit upright, head above shoulders, shoulders above hips, and just begin to breathe with me. So as you breathe in, breathe in through your nose and allow your chest and your belly to expand fully taking in your breath. And as you exhale, just let go. Let go of any tension you feel, allowing your body to fully relax. This time as you breathe in, breathe in light to every cell of your being, to the tip of your head, to your fingers, to your toes. And as you exhale, relax deeper. This time as you breathe in, breathe in love, filling your whole body with love, pure love. And as you exhale, let go of any fear or any anticipation you feel. This time as you breathe in, place your hand on your heart, activating your heart, opening your heart, Just spend a moment thinking of something you feel incredibly grateful for. It could be a person, a place, a thing, something somebody recently said, and just breathe in that amazing gratitude you feel. And as you exhale, letting go, open your eyes. Well, I am so excited to begin this podcast series with you, this series on uh, meditation and mindfulness. I'm super excited to begin with somebody who I just adore, um, I've come to know as a friend, and I'm really, really lucky to spend time with her. She's just a wonderful woman. Um, Her name is Dr. Shauna Shapiro. She's a professor, a clinical psychologist, and internationally recognized expert in mindfulness. With 20 years of meditation experience studying in Thailand and Nepal, and in the West, Dr. Shapiro brings an embodied sense of mindfulness to her scientific work. She has published over 150 journal articles and chapters, and co-authored the critically acclaimed text, The Art and Science of Mindfulness and Mindful Discipline, a loving approach to setting limits and raising an emotionally intelligent child. Dr. Shapiro is the recipient of the American Council of Learned Society's Teaching Award, acknowledging her outstanding contributions to graduate education, as well as a contemplative practice fellow of the Mind and Life Institute, co-founded by the Dalai Lama. 
Dr. Shapiro has been invited to lecture for the King of Thailand, the Danish government, and the World Council for Psychotherapy in Beijing, China. Her work has been featured in Wired, USA Today, in the Yoga Journal, and the American Psychologist. Welcome so much, Shauna. Thank you so much for joining us for this call today. Thank you, Chris. I'm delighted to be here. So I love to just begin by allowing our listeners to just to get to know you a little bit and what your own mindfulness journey has been about. And so whatever you feel comfortable sharing, I mean, it's wonderful and amazing that you're a clinical psychologist and that you also combine mindfulness. And I'd be curious for you to share with our audience um, how that came about. Like, how did you end up specializing yeah. in mindfulness? Yeah, thank you. Uh, so I, I became really interested in mindfulness after I had had major back surgery. I had spinal fusion surgery, a metal rod put in my spine, and spent a great deal of time in stillness and silence rehabilitating. And after that period, it led me to really searching, um, which led me to Thailand. And after my experiences there at meditation retreats and different monasteries, I came back to America and really wanted to understand mindfulness and meditation from a scientific perspective and to see if we could offer it as a secular technique to everyone. And um, that was almost 20 years ago, and I've been studying mindfulness both scientifically and also from um, a deep personal and experiential practice, and I have discovered a lot of pretty extraordinary things about it. Wow, you're such a young woman, you know, at your age even, you were so young to really embark on that journey and really ahead of your time. I mean, if you think about it, like there's it's such the everyday conversation now, but you are really one of the pioneers in this whole field. I mean, working with um, people like Andrew Weil, right? And Yeah, I feel like I've been really fortunate in the mentors and teachers that I've had. I began working with Andrew Weil and Dean Ornish and John Kabat-Zinn and Jack Cornfield all in my early 20s and had just um, tremendous support along this path. Uh, I also had wonderful PhD mentors, and it was interesting because even though I had so many people warn me that if I studied mindfulness and meditation, it would ruin my academic career and I would never become a professor, I also <laughs> had a lot of support and mentors who said, you have to follow your heart, study what you love, and it'll work out. Um, so That's so beautiful. That's such a beautiful part of your story. I was wondering, like, when you first introduced mindfulness to um, one of your classrooms, how do you introduce the topic of mindfulness to them? Yeah, so that's been also an interesting evolution. When I first became a professor, uh, you know, I was 29 years old. My students were graduate students, so they were about my age. And it was back when mindfulness wasn't very popular. So I would start class and say, who here has heard of mindfulness? And maybe one or two students would raise their hand. And everyone would kind of, you know, giggle a little bit as I started to explain it. And it was clearly awkward. And this is, you know, in California where it's probably more, <laughs> more acceptable. Now, when I ask students at the beginning of class, who's heard of mindfulness, they look at me as if, of course we've heard of it. Why are you even asking that question? It's like if I ask, you know, who's heard of an apple? <laughs> and um, so, so my way of introducing it now is very different than before because 
it's so mainstream. But, but always what I try to do is introduce it as both an attentional technique that we can use to train our mind, our hearts, our bodies in a particular way. And I introduce it as a natural human capacity that we all have. We all have the ability to be present, to pay attention, to be open, curious, and kind. So I try to demystify mindfulness and to teach it in a way that, which is really what it is, which is a natural human capacity that we can develop and strengthen. Ah, that's great. I love that. That's almost how you define it, right? I define it as the awareness that arises when we intentionally pay attention in a kind, open, curious way so that it's, it's this natural awareness that's always already here and we can refine it and tap into it by focusing our attention in the present moment with a kind, compassionate attitude. That's gorgeous. Now, is meditation imperative to practicing mindfulness? It's a great question that everyone asks. And not <laughs> only do they ask, that, is meditation imperative? But if it is, how long or really how short do I have to do it to make it work? So, so my belief is we all are born uh, kind of at a different range or continuum of, of mindfulness. You know, what's kind of like the Michael Jordans of, of basketball. Um, they... they he has a natural capacity, and with practice, he gets even better. All of us have a natural capacity to pay attention. Some of us need, I believe, more strength building. So I see meditation as really just like going to the gym and doing kind of mental hygiene, you know, mental mm-hmm. workout. And so I invite all of the patients and clients that I work with to develop a practice. What that means for them is different than maybe what it means for someone else. So I work with people a lot on defining what their intention is, what their goal is, what their motivation is, and then finding practices that are specifically tailored to them. So practices like? Well, the most basic practice that I usually begin everyone with is just sitting and being present in a kind way, Mm. where we sit back and we actually touch into what it feels like to be alive right now. Like right now, you and I speaking here and for all the listeners, just to take a moment to feel your feet, to wiggle your toes, and to get a sense of the whole body sitting here. And maybe notice your breath. And notice your face and soften your jaw. And we're just kind of arriving in our body, just paying attention. And as we begin to expand our attention, we can notice sounds, we can notice emotions or moods, we can notice thoughts. And the key part is that not only are we paying attention, but we're doing it with kindness. Mm. So that if I notice a little bit of pain in my back, I don't say, oh, God, there's that horrible pain. I say, oh, sweetheart, ouch, your back's hurting. (laughs) Or if I notice that my mind already wandered off to what I'm going to make for dinner instead of saying, oh, I can't believe you can't even pay attention for one second. What's wrong with you? I say, oh, interesting. You're thinking about dinner. That's natural. Bring yourself back. And so the key is not just paying attention. It's how you pay attention. It's this quality of kindness, of openness, of real interest. Almost like you're a parent and you're saying to your child, come here, I want to hear about it. Tell me. Wow, and I like that idea of um, 
Do you find that the more kind and gentle one is with themselves, the more kind and gentle they are with the world around them too? Absolutely. We know with neuroplasticity that what you practice grows stronger. So if I'm practicing being kind to myself, being compassionate, I'm practicing, you know, 24-7 with myself. That's who I have to relate to all day. And so it then more naturally extends to other people. There's a wonderful study they did back in 1990, and they looked at therapists, and they asked therapists to rate themselves, how compassionate are you with yourself versus how compassionate are you with your clients? And, what, and then they videotaped the therapist, and they had objective raters rate how compassionate they were with their clients. They watched the videos. And what they found at the end is that therapists who rated themselves as kind of judgmental and critical of themselves were rated as judgmental and critical by the objective observers, even though the therapist didn't think they were being critical. And so what I teach my students, who many of them are becoming therapists, is that if you want to learn how to be compassionate and empathic, you have to begin with yourself. Mm. That's so powerful for everyone. I mean, a lot of times, you know, we teach so much and talk so much about negative self-talk and a lack of compassion that people generally have with themselves. So it sounds like um, beginning a mindfulness practice and is, is really imperative to changing that. Absolutely. And, there, you know, it's interesting because, you know, we all hear, we all say, be kind to yourself, practice self-compassion, love starts with yourself. You know, I've heard it for decades. And there's a way I've kind of poo-pooed it, like, yeah, yeah, okay. But the more I've delved into the science of it, the more convinced I am that that truly is the place of healing. What's interesting is that what I've learned about shame and self-judgment is that it doesn't work. Not only um, does, when you feel shame, the centers of the brain that have to do with learning, they shut down. They actually prevent you from changing the parts of yourself you want to change. But the other thing about shame that I find just so insidious is that it's so painful to feel ashamed oh, that yeah. we actually repress and deny the parts of ourselves we're most ashamed of because it's just too uncomfortable to feel them. And this is where kind attention comes in, is that when we pay attention with kindness first, it gives us the courage to actually look at those parts of ourselves that we're too ashamed of otherwise. But second, kindness floods our system with dopamine and turns on the learning centers of the brain so that we actually have the resources we need to change. Oh, that's wonderful. That's great to know, isn't it? Don't you wish that you knew that as a child? That <laughs> yeah. to everyone, that, that shame doesn't work? Yeah. Literally, physiologically can't work? And that's really a great thing for parents to know, um, which kind of segues us nicely into your book about mindfully disciplining children and raising an emotionally intelligent child. I mean, so let's talk about that for a moment because I really think like um, mindfulness, I, I was talking to um, my daughter Jazz and she was telling me that she's learning some mindfulness meditation that's really helping her in all areas of her life. And I imagine it's incredibly helpful with parenting because that's such the easiest place for us to become overwhelmed and reactive, and, and then that's not good for anyone. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, and I, I'm so glad Jazz is learning some techniques that are helpful for her, and it's so important. 
And in the book, we actually focus mostly on parents. So the, the, the idea is that if you can learn to become more mindful, if you can learn to offer discipline in a specific way that is conscious and also and also takes into account the developmental space of your child. I mean, most of our children, you know, the book was written for younger children ages 2 to 10. You know, their prefrontal cortex hasn't developed. And so one is we often give them too much information too quickly. And two, when we make them feel afraid or, or judged or shamed, it completely shuts them down. So there's no way that we can teach them. And really, discipline means to educate. If we, you know, it has such a bad, um, you know, we have so much baggage around the word discipline. Like, it's bad and you shouldn't, you know, and we think of, like, you know, spanking or something like that. But discipline just means to educate. And so education is a beautiful thing. And if we can kind of re-commandeer that word to say, how do we best educate? How do we best teach our children? How do we help them grow into compassionate, healthy, thriving adults? And that's really what the book is about, is helping us all better understand what the role of parents can be. Can you give us a daily example? I know you have a son, and he's a little bit older than that now, but when you, when he was younger, how did you put your mindfulness practice to work in, in disciplining him? Yeah, it's a wonderful question, and I, and I have to say, <laughs> he's 11 years old, and we are still in the process of learning how to best do it. And what a wonderful example, a recent one, is a lot of times when it's time for us to leave the house, I'll say, okay, Jackson, it's time to go. And he'll be kind of in the middle of something. And so we'll get into a, a tug of war about leaving and getting out of the house and then running late. And once he said to me, he's like, mom, you're stressing me out. <laughs> and I realized I was stressing him out because I wasn't giving him enough, enough notice about when we were going to leave. And so I asked him, you know, what would be the best best way to do this? And so we agreed that one, I would give him plenty of notice, right? And I would do it in a calm way, which is, sweetheart, we're going to need to leave in 15 minutes. Why don't you figure out how much longer you need to finish playing your card game and then to actually put the cards away. And then when it was actually time to go, to come in there and to be close to him, instead of kind of yelling from the kitchen, all right, it's time to go, to actually walk in there, make contact with him, and support him in the transition. Oh, nice. And it just takes an extra minute, but it's so helpful and it's so much kinder. And so it's these simple ways. I know we talked a lot in the book about really coming close to and making physical contact with your child and going slowly so that their nervous system can downregulate and recalibrate and receive whatever it is you're trying to teach. Yeah, that makes so much um, sense. And also just, I mean, just think about it logically with their mirror neurons firing and just everything being so overwhelming in life anyways. The last thing they need is for their parent to be yelling in their face. <laughs> exactly. And they, their mirror neurons are what are really the most important thing is they're picking up how you feel. Right. So if I'm running around and I'm late, which is, I think, often the case, is then he picks that up and it does stress him out. And so what I need to do, my mindfulness practice is to regulate myself first. Mm -hmm. And once I'm totally regulated, to connect with him and support him in the transition. 
And I think parents, you know, they're all like, well, what can I teach my kid and what practice because they have like attention deficit or they have all these different things. And I, I think mindfulness can be a wonderful support for children. And I really, really um, encourage that. And it begins w- with ourselves as parents. Absolutely. And I, I would also think that a mindfulness practice would really help um, a person become more engaged at work in a really healthy way, too. I'm sure that you found that to be incredibly helpful for people um, in dealing with stressful situations at work, managing their own emotions at work, and, and just Absolutely. being able to deeply engage, right? Absolutely. We just published a chapter in the university, uh, Oxford University Press on mindfulness in the workplace. And there is a growing, it's new, but growing body of literature showing the benefits of mindfulness in the workplace, that it increases productivity, it enhances employee relationship, it enhances supervisor, manager, employee relationships, it reduces sick days, and it enhances creativity and innovation. So there's a lot of benefits for mindfulness um, you know, beyond just kind of stress management, that it not only reduces our stress, it actually enhances really important qualities and skills for the workplace. Yeah, that's all of the things that you um, mentioned are just so important. I mean, I think oftentimes what happens to people is they end up spending more time with the people they work with than they do the people that they love and live with. (laughs) So it it behooves us to find a way to do that um, that promotes kindness and promotes engagement. So that's, that's a beautiful approach. So how does one get started in their meditation and mindfulness practice? Well, first, I do want to mention that you can go to um, Shauna's website at www.drshaunashapiro.com, and that's S-H-A-U-N-A-S-H-A-P-I-R-O.com, drshaunashapiro.com. And she has a lovely um, meditation that you can download that's free, and I would encourage you to do that. That's really wonderful that you've given that meditation, Shauna. It's really um, powerful and and super sweet. I love listening to it. Mm, Thank you, Chris. So, yeah, if you want to begin a mindfulness practice, uh, I do strongly encourage you to download the, the free meditation because I find that, and if you don't want to use mine, there's many free downloads, but, but I do find that having some support in the beginning is helpful Yeah. because the mind is so untrained and untamed that it's going to wander all over the place. And it's not that it's bad to wander. You know, in fact, the average person wanders 46.9% of the time. So that's about half of our life we're totally spaced out. (laughs) Um, So it's not that something's wrong with you. It's natural to wander. And we can train our mind to wander less. And the way you do that is by intentionally focusing your attention. And a a meditation, MP3, a CD, offers support for that. So I strongly encourage people for the first month or two to every day practice with some form of guided guided meditation. I also always begin with my own clients setting an intention. Why do you want to do this? What's most important to you? Because otherwise meditation just becomes one more thing on our to-do list. That's so true. And you don't want to have a relationship with meditation 
like it's this, you know, horrible thing that you have to do because you heard somewhere that it was good for you. <laughs> I, I really encourage people to meditate because they want to meditate because after a while it starts to feel good. It's like exercising or eating healthy that once you, once it becomes a lifestyle, it's just something natural that the benefits feel so good. You keep doing it. It's self-supporting. And that's what I find with meditation. So in the beginning, you need to use your motivation as a way to get started. But once you start doing it for a little while, what I found with the patients that I've worked with is that when you don't meditate, you notice it and you feel different. Life isn't as clear. It isn't as joyful. You're not as connected. We all know what it feels like to be stressed and overwhelmed and out of touch and missing, missing our lives. And mindfulness offers an antidote. And I think that it's, it's worth the five to 20 minutes that you spend each day. And in fact, what I found is those minutes that I spend in meditation sometimes are extraordinarily powerful and beautiful and joyful. And sometimes they're difficult, but I know ultimately they're leading me to where I want to go. Yeah, and I, I also feel that just the more that you meditate, the more it allows you to be a lot more reflective in your life and you know, just very responsive versus reactive. You know, again, it doesn't matter if you're at the grocery store and somebody has 15 items um, or they're supposed to have 15 and they have 20 in the line and that annoys you and irritates you or somebody says something that you're close to that annoys you, just helps you to, you know, take a step back from those knee-jerk reactions that are so easy to have when you, when you don't have a meditation or mindfulness practice just allows you to be a lot more reflective about life. Yeah, it really gives you choice. And I think that, that you're saying it exactly right, that mindfulness offers this little gap or space between stimulus and response where you can choose. And so instead of automatically reacting, and often when we automatically react, we say things that are harmful or do things that are harmful, and you can't retrieve those words or those actions. And so to take the extra moment to pause, to feel your breath, to feel your body, and then choose wisely the best way to respond. I love that. And Shauna, you're so clear, and the way you speak is just so beautifully eloquent, and, and it's kind. I, I know that you can all hear the beauty and the kindness that's in Shauna. She's also one of the physically most beautiful women I know. She's gorgeous. <laughs> And she's, she's just so sweet, and I just want to thank you so much for um, bringing your knowledge and your expertise and, and your wide breadth of wisdom to this podcast. I know that the listeners are going to appreciate listening to you so much, and thanks so much for taking time out of your day. Is there anything you want to leave our listeners with? Uh, well, first of all, thank you. I feel, I feel really honored and really touched, so I appreciate being part of this, and I think I would just invite everyone listening right now to take a moment to feel their body, to feel their breath, and to really offer gratitude toward themselves for taking the time to, to really open themselves in this way and to maybe reflect on one kind of teaching or gold nugget that you heard in this last little bit that you want to take with you. One thing that maybe what you practice grows stronger or that shame doesn't work or that your mind wanders off a lot and it's natural and so not to judge yourself for it. But whatever one little piece that you want to take with you 
anchored in your body and just trust that this time has really been of benefit. Mm, I mm. love that. Thank you so much, Thank Shana. you, Chris. All right. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for okay. listening and thanks for coming and we'll um, and come back again. Thanks for listening to the Meditation and Mindfulness series on the Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, Live the Big Stuff podcast with Christine Carlson. Chris has a free gift to offer you, the Guide to the Golden Pause. Just as every podcast begins, you can experience your own golden pause every day. This simple guide can be found at christinecarlson.com forward slash golden pause guide. Download it now and make the golden pause a routine part of your busy schedule.